How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to this new episode of the church needs therapy. Now this is a, this is an interesting episode because it might be the first of what could be at least a four-part series. And here's why. When someone begins to discuss and engage a particular issue in therapy, there are moments where immediately the therapist knows that this issue is deep this issue is a complex one. This issue is caught up in a very multi-dimensional, multi-layered entanglement, right? It's not just, let's talk about this one thing that happened to you as an adult. It's, let's talk about this pattern and how it's connected with that pattern. And then the more, the deeper we go, the more muddled, the more complex, the more intense, the heavier we recognize that it actually is. Like this thing's so entrenched and entangled and it's such a complex issue that we have to unravel multiple threads before we can finally start to get at what's really at the core. So it's, if you want to talk about this thing, we got to talk about the thing behind the thing. If you want to talk about this thing, we got to talk about the thing before the thing. Or we got to talk about the thing within the thing. We got to talk about the thing after the thing. And eventually, like every other thing, we're back talking about your mom again. Right? Sometimes it's not, oh, let's talk about this for 30 minutes. It's, oh, once this gets brought up, this is going to be a long journey. But this is going to help us get at some much deeper stuff. So when the church is in therapy and we start to discuss why <laughs> disgust that may have been a Freudian slip and we start to discuss why she is so committed to, supportive of, and sometimes obsessed with Donald Trump, we know this is going to take a long time. Let me tell you a story. Right after the 2016 election, a good friend of mine from the mainland called me and told me about an exchange he had with somebody else on his staff the day after the election. So my friend at this point was working for this very large evangelical megachurch. <clears throat> so, I mean, they probably have, you know, 20, 30 people on staff there, right? It's this massive sort of structure. And the day after the election, my friend goes into the camp. He goes onto the campus. He goes into the offices. And the first conversation he has 
another guy comes up to him who's also in his 30s, who's also, you know, a young guy. So the guy comes up to him and says, well, we got our guy in office. We got our guy in office. Let's just think about that for a second. I don't think this young man was speaking only for himself. I think he was speaking, when he says our, there's a collective thing happening right there. So when he says our, he may just be referring to his particular local church, but it's also possible he may be referring to the church as a whole, at least as he understands it. So what he's doing is he's carrying this collective idea that Trump is somehow, quote unquote, our guy. He's carrying this notion that Trump is somehow what? Like the natural choice of a Christian in the United States of America? Maybe that's why in 2016, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Or maybe that's why, ooh, I forgot. I think it's why Franklin Graham, it's either him or Jerry Falwell Jr., they tend to get mixed up in my mind from their quotes. But it's why I think Jerry Falwell Jr. says that Donald Trump is evangelicals' dream president. So when we look at 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016, when we have this collective, we got our guy in office way of thinking, and when we have one of the most prominent conservative evangelical leaders in the country referring to Donald Trump as a dream president, let's just say it seems like we have a lot to entangle here. Because here's the thing, whether people are aware of it or not, so many people outside of the church are asking some form of this question. How can someone be Christian and support Donald Trump? That's a, that's a cultural question that so many people, both within the church but also outside of the church, are asking. Which means there are probably millions of people who have no idea how much of the church can reconcile their commitment to Jesus and their allegiance to Donald Trump. So as we begin this whole process of, of disentangling, right? I said earlier we have a lot to entangle. I meant we have a lot to disentangle here. So as we begin this process of disentangling, this first episode is a very simple exercise that does not have much analysis. It's just more observational, maybe even juxtaposing two things next to each other. So here's how we're going to begin this first episode. Let's begin by looking at some of Trump's words, and then we'll look at some words from Jesus and some words from the scriptures. Let's just put it out there based on communication. Let's explore the heart and character of Trump through many of the things he's said over the years, and let's explore the heart and character of God as expressed in the Bible. See, in this exercise, let's just place these two characters, these two dynamics, these two narratives next to each other, and let's see if they align themselves pretty organically or if they seem to diverge from each other. What happens? Because people are asking the question. 
How can people reconcile their commitment to Jesus and their allegiance to Donald Trump? So let's just put these two narratives, these two voices next to each other and see if there's a natural aligning or if there seems to be something else happening. So I'm going to do three things. I'm going to talk about Trump's honesty and the, what the scriptures say about honesty. I'm going to talk about how Trump speaks about many of his opponents and what the scriptures say about kindness and the power of language. And then we'll look a little bit about Trump's quotes about himself and what the scriptures say about pride and greatness and servanthood. And then we're going to end with a little story and one defense mechanism. So the first thing, let's look at how Trump relates to honesty and what the scriptures say about it. In May of, I believe, last year, Trump bragged to a gathering of military families that he had given them a raise. He had given their family, their military uh, family who served in the military, he had given them a raise for the first time in 10 years. What Trump maybe didn't realize was service members have received a pay raise every year since 1961. So look at a few more things. Trump lied by claiming immigration has caused crime to spike in Germany. In fact, it's at a 30-year low. Trump lied by saying the FBI was spying on his presidential campaign. No thorough evidence to corroborate this. Trump lied by claiming his tax cut was the biggest in American history. It wasn't. Trump lied in saying the tax cut wouldn't go primarily to the rich or benefit him. Both of those were false. Trump lied by claiming that there was substantial evidence of voter fraud during the presidential election. There wasn't. Trump lied about signing more legislation than any other president. It's not even close. That's not even true. Trump lied about the U.S. having the highest taxes in the developed world. That's not true. Trump lied in claiming the murder rate in the U.S. was at a 47-year high when he took office. It was actually at a near-historic low. And of course, Trump lied about Obama wiretapping his campaign, which simply wasn't true. Let's take a quick break. This is where we have the chance to practice something that's called pattern recognition. Or I would say this, this is the moment my three-year-old daughter would say, Daddy, look, a pattern. (laughs) Because she's recognizing this isn't a one-off random occurrence. I'm starting to see there's a pattern here. A couple more things. In one of the earliest and most absurd claims of his young administration, Trump said he had up to 1.5 million people in attendance for his inauguration, making it the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration, period, unquote. There is photographic evidence you've probably seen that refutes this claim in almost in an almost laughable way. And he also invoked God's name saying it didn't rain during his inauguration but poured after, which also wasn't true because it did rain during his inauguration. Trump said he had the biggest electoral college win since Reagan, when in reality, Trump trailed five of the previous seven presidents. You look at the pandemic a little bit. On Wednesday, June 17th, Trump said that the pandemic is fading away and that it's going to fade away. And he made this claim right ahead of his rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when the country was still seeing at least 20,000 new daily cases 
and a second spike in infections was beginning, which is where I'm recording this at the end of July, which is what is happening right now. July 6th, on a Monday, Trump said we have the lowest mortality or fatality rate in the world, <laughs> which the U.S. has neither the lowest mortality rate nor the lowest case fatality rate either. I could go on and on. I actually think I skipped this statistic. Let me go back up for a second in these notes. There is, oh, here we go. After just three years in office, one reporter or writer says Trump has made over 16,000 false or misleading statements, a number previously unimaginable when it comes to the most powerful person in the world. I gave you a very small sample of some of those misleading statements or blatant lies. So let's just look at some of those. Let me just read a couple scriptures right here. Proverbs 14.5. Proverbs is all about the words of this sage talking about wisdom. So the writer says this, an honest witness does not deceive but a false witness pours out lies. Here's another one from the book of Proverbs 6:19. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Hmm. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. For churches who claim not only to love God's word, but also who claim that the Bible is uniquely inspired by God, it would appear, right, fault track with me for a sec, I could be totally off, it would appear there is some serious conflict here between the word of God and the word of Trump. When you put Trump's statistics next to these scriptures about a false witness, about not lying, taking off the old self, does it seem like these two sort of dynamics, right, the, the God as revealed in and through scripture and Trump, does it seem like there is a natural alignment here? Would it seem like Trump, if, if, if he's our guy for the church, does it seem like he naturally sort of lines up with the values, with the way that you see in the scripture? Just a question. Let's move on to the second part. Here's the thing about how Trump treats people he sees as his enemy, which it seems like Jesus had some really profound and radical things to say about loving our enemies. Trump, let's, see, let's look at some specific quotes about how Trump talks about some of his opponents or just people he doesn't like. Then we'll look at some quotes and some scriptures. So Trump appears, again, I may be totally off on this one. This is why we're just doing this experiment, this exercise right now. Trump seems to have this history of calling people demeaning, rude, and sometimes extremely childish names. Here's a list of some, some classic ones people know. Um, he refers to Karl Rove as dopey Karl Rove. Then he says, you know, the dummy dope like Harry Kurt, which this is a president around the age of 70 calling someone a dummy dope. Again, my, this is where my three-year-old daughter would say, Daddy, that's not nice. 
she reads Pinkalicious books, and when Pinkalicious stomps her feet, my daddy's like, my, my daughter looks at me, she's like, Daddy, that's not nice. Over stomping feet. This is a 70-year-old man calling another grown man a dummy dope. In, the pre- just, this is just exercise. And he says, quote, then he, I'm just going to list them out. The truly weird Senator Rand Paul, Frank Lutz is a low-class slob. These are all quotes. The perv sleazebag Anthony Weiner. Uh, he calls Stormy Daniels horse face, which uh, there is a whole story behind that woman and why they had a relationship. He calls Hillary Clinton a nasty woman and coined a term for her crooked Hillary. Uh, Trump said of his former Republican primary competitor, Carly Fiorini, Fiorina. Look at her. This was during, the, I remember this during like when they were uh, during leading up to the election. He said, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? This is a 70-year-old-ish man looking at another grown woman. This guy's running for president of the United States. And he talks about an, a, a, an opponent who also wants to be the Republican candidate. And he says, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Look. Ugh. Think about what he's saying there. How demeaning and immature and childish and disgusting a comment like this. Look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? As if someone's looks have anything to do with their ability to lead others. Okay? In the past, he referred to Omarosa. He says he referred to Omarosa as that dog. The president of the United States of America, not that long before he got elected, refers to a black woman as a dog. Trump called the 1996 Miss Universe beauty pageant winner Alicia Machado disgusting and Miss Piggy. Calls Rosie O'Donnell a total loser. Called Seth Meyers, the late night talk show host, he said, he said he's a stutterer, which first of all, I don't think he actually is a stutterer. I don't think he has any kind of speech impediment. But when he refers to Seth Meyers, oh, he's a stutterer as a demeaning comment to write him off. This is a 70-year-old man. I think he's 74 now. Using a speech impediment people cannot control as a way of demeaning other adults. You would get in trouble in third grade for that. Okay, when referring to Robert De Niro, he says we're not dealing with Albert Einstein. When he when he talked about Ariana Huffington of Huffington Post, he says that she is quote unattractive both inside and out. I fully understand why her former husband left her for a man. So he's referring to this woman as unattractive both inside and out, as if it's just a casual way to talk about women. This is, again, this is where my daughter would say, Daddy, that doesn't seem really nice. And she's three. And he's 70. And he's still saying these things. Are you tracking with me so far? I have two hands on my head pulling my hair right now as I'm saying that. And as a quick side note, when recently asked about Glaseline Maxwell, I might have said her first name wrong, who was, you know, very involved in the Epstein case. And she was sort of his liaison she was the one kind of also manipulating young women to be caught up with him when recently in an interview just recently in 2020 when trump was asked about maxwell one he said he barely knew her which is clearly not true then 
The only thing he said was he wishes her well. This is Trump looking at protesters, calling them thugs, calling people names across the board. When asked about somebody who is currently in prison, when it's clear that this woman had this massive role in all of this weird sexual underage women with older men stuff and how she's sort of manipulative and in, in power and control of that process, when asked about her, Trump just wished her well. Very fascinating choice of words compared to everything else, he says. Leading up to the presidential election, he always called Ted Cruz, Lion Ted Cruz. During that time, Trump tweeted, quote, be careful, Lion Ted, or I will spill the beans on your wife, right? This kind of vague statement. But he then retweeted a photo of Ted Cruz's wife where someone was insulting how she looked. So when Trump says, I'll spill the beans on your wife, what he's implying based on what he retweeted was, I will tell the world how unattractive that she is. The president of the United States, not the president of third grade at Longden Elementary School, which is where I went, which even then that would be seen as appropriate. The president of the United States of America is saying, I will expose to the world how ugly your wife is. He's 70 saying this to another grown man. Oh my gosh. Let's look at a couple scriptures just to see how well these sort of things align. Think about all of that. James 1.26 says this. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Proverbs 11.12. Whoever derides their neighbor has no sense but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And Jesus also challenges the disciples to love and to pray for their enemies. Does the way Trump talks about his opponents or people he doesn't like seem to align with the wisdom of the scriptures, the challenging word from James about controlling your tongue and, re- and a worthless religion? Do the, in Jesus's words about loving your enemies, Ephesians words about being kind, tenderhearted and forgiving, one another, do these things seem to align? This is just an exercise we do. Do the words of Trump seem to align with the words of Scripture? Because when 81% of white evangelicals or when people say our guy is in office, when the church is in therapy, we're simply holding up a mirror saying, do these things seem to go together? What do you think about all of this? And the last one, let's just look at some of Trump's quotes about how he views himself We'll look at a few things on humility and we'll wrap up because already we're 22 minutes into the first episode of this and it's a lot to take in. We haven't even got to the racism, to the xenophobia, to the sexist comments. We haven't got to policies. That Those are entirely different episodes. This is just small, minor, personal character stuff and already it can be a lot. So let's just look at a few more quotes of how Trump views himself. These are all quotes. Trump, there's nobody that's done there's nobody that's done so much for equality as I have. No one respects women more than me. He said no one reads the Bible more than me. 
No one, which is a weird quote to make and so far from the truth, it's hilarious. He said, nobody knows more about taxes than me, maybe in the history of the world. Okay. He described a phone call he had, I believe, with Russia or Ukraine at the time. Like, it gets so mixed up as the perfect phone call. By what metrics can you say a phone call was perfect? He's like, it was just the right amount of silence. There was no awkwardness. I cracked jokes. We were like, how do you even gauge that? A perfect phone call. He says, nobody knows about debt more than I do. Nobody's bigger or bigger at the military than I am. No one's bigger at the military than I am. I don't even know what that means. He says, I am the least racist person you'll ever meet. Nobody's ever been more successful than me. He says, nobody builds better walls than me. And of course, the most perfect comment of all time, he says, nobody is better on humility than me. Trump talks about his, quote, great and unmatched wisdom. Another quote, the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. He even, I don't even want to say this other thing he says. And then when asked about not paying taxes, he said the ability to avoid paying taxes, he says, quote, that makes me smart. Him avoiding taxes, he said, that makes me smart. That is fascinating when there's so many conversations about, quote, illegal immigrants coming here and not paying taxes and how so many of his supporters are so massive on that. But when Trump talks about not paying taxes, he says that makes him smart. I can't even keep going on about that. A couple more scriptures as we place these things next to each other. Proverbs 3.34, the with this deep wisdom from the tradition says he, referring to God, he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Luke 14, 11, Jesus says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And of course, referring to greatness and servanthood, Jesus says, the last shall be first. Again, we haven't even got into policies. We haven't got into the racism, the xenophobia, the tweets, the the sexual accusations, his aligning himself with religion. We haven't even really got in to any of his decisions and way he led. We're just looking at personal character stuff. For so long, the moral majority, the Christian right, the church, who has been the voice, who has always been about personal character, who's always been the biggest voice on morality, who's always held people so accountable for that. And you would assume for that legacy to continue, they would be highly concerned with the character of a candidate and how much it reflects the character of Christ. When the church is in therapy and we ask her, okay, when your massive support, your continuous support of Donald Trump, and I hold up the words of Trump and I hold up the words of Christ or the words of the scriptures to you, to you, does, does all of that seem to integrate well with each other? How can you, like the rest of the world is asking, how can you reconcile your faith in Christ and your allegiance to Donald Trump? Trump, does it seem like those things naturally weave into each other? Or, like many people might assume, is there a bit of denial 
that is happening here for the church in terms of how they justify their support of Trump. I remember when I was in grad school, I was in a night class and I get a call from a friend who was running, who, who ran a nonprofit at that time. And I had helped somebody close to me get become a part of that nonprofit for a while. And after a while, they were suspecting that my friend or family member who was there may have been using, again, a person who struggles with addiction or maybe was stealing. So my friend who runs the nonprofit calls me and says, Kev, we have reasons to believe your friend or family member is stealing or using. And the moment he said that, I, without hesitation, said, go search his stuff. Go search his stuff right now. I have a history with this person. I love this person to death. I'm familiar with addiction myself personally, with having people I love deeply who are addicts. Right when he said that, I said, go search his stuff. So he goes, he's like, thank you. He goes back to the meeting. He looks at my friend or family member and says, we are going to go upstairs and search your stuff right now. When he said that to my family member or my friend in that moment, the friend who got accused of it takes off running to his room. At that point, you don't have to search his stuff. If he stole something or if he has drugs on him, it's there. If you say, hey, we think you might have stole something or have drugs on you and we're going to search your stuff and that person sprints out of the room to go there, you, you already have your answer. So the leader of the nonprofit goes up, follows my friend or family member, goes to the room and sees my friend or family member grab something and hold it in their hand. So the leader of the nonprofit says, open up your hand right now. Person says, no, he says, open up your hand. It's filled with pills. As, he's, as, as this person is holding a handful of pills, he's still saying, I don't have anything on me. He's holding a handful of pills. My, the other person can see, he says, I don't have anything on me. That would be an extreme form of denial. That shows us how obvious it can be to everyone else, how delusional we can be or how in denial we are sometimes. But even then, we don't always have the ability to admit it because our ability to deceive ourselves is so deep because denial is so strong. Strongs is so strong. Because one of the most powerful defense mechanisms human beings or a collective group of people can have is denial. Denial is simply when an unacceptable fact exists, one that conflicts with our wishes or beliefs, we deny that it's true. It, denial always involves denying our own awareness. There is always this deep avoidance of pain associated with the thing that we are denying. So when the rest of the culture looks at the church, laughs at the church, gets angry at the church, walks away from the church, or attacks the church because of their support of Donald Trump, when they ask the question, how can they follow Jesus and be the biggest supporter of Donald Trump? Let me ask this question. Is the church in denial? Is there some form of denial that has to be happening in order to compartmentalize the life and teachings of Jesus, in order to believe that your commitment as a Christian can naturally align itself with a support of Donald Trump. 
is there some strong denial, some collective denial happening in the church that allows them to maintain support of Donald Trump? Or when you hear all those words of Donald Trump and the words of the Bible, do those actually align? And are other people tripping? Is there no denial? Is there a natural way to integrate those? Because based on this exercise, it would seem pretty hard to do so, wouldn't it? Do you see, based on the little, the tiny little sliver we looked at today, do you see Trump's character and words essentially aligned with the character and words of Christ in the Bible? Or is there some form of denial that has to be happening right now in order for the church to maintain their support of Donald Trump? While the church is in therapy, let's just, normally the episodes is let's look at the issue, let's discuss it, let's look at another way forward. But because this is a four to six part uh, series on the church and Donald Trump, we're not looking at a way forward yet. We're just talking about some of the issues first. So I leave that question for the listener. Does it seem like these things align well, or is there some form of denial that has to happen for the church to maintain support of Donald Trump? Based on this exercise, you can sit with that. You can wrestle with that. You can come to your conclusions about that. You probably have some suspicions about how I feel about that. But I'm not going to jump to the conclusions yet because we have a lot more to go in this journey. The church needs therapy. And this week and for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the church and Donald Trump.